This is Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. Okay, well, I guess we're we're uh, recording now for reals. Okay. So, hello, hello. Hi. And I'm double checking everything's working so far. Yay, so it is in recording. Yes. This is officially our Fifth, fourth time trying to record this episode. Oh my gosh, yes. How many times did we try, actually? I think it was either four or five times. <laughs> well, so We're very much legit now. Yes, we're... I feel like you you can only call yourself a podcaster if you've had... If you've had to record your episode at least once or twice, at least. I feel like so you... We're yeah. podcasters. We're official podcasters. And I mean, that makes sense. This is episode four. And we have a slew of other episodes in the works. Because we've had the privilege of being able to talk to some amazing people for our Corazón a Corazón segment. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, one of those uh, that I'm so excited about today is Saida Kelly. So, oh yeah. She's amazing. If you don't already follow her, you should be. Her Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages are under Bad Dominicana. And we'll talk a lot more about her um, as we get closer to the Corazón a Corazón segment. We're so committed to this podcast that we are recording over Skype because we are not going to be able to be in the same place for a few weeks, mostly because of the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, um, <laughs> and um, some upcoming travel that I have in the beginning of the month for of December. So I feel like our next couple of episodes are going to be recorded over Skype. <laughs> I know! <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but... Um, Nonetheless, it's really good to hear your voice. As much as we had hoped to have this episode ready heading into the like the long weekend, mm-hmm. we weren't able to do that because of many, many um, te- technology failures. Technical difficulties. <laughs> right, technical difficulties. But for me, it was... It was a really nice long weekend. I was able to go to El Paso to spend time with my mom and my dad, and my older brother was also there. And, you know, when I go home, for me, anywhere that my parents are, that's home. So, like, I did not grow up in El Paso, but anytime I go visit my parents, that's home. Um, so every time I go home, it it's usually really relaxing. Like, we don't do very much. So usually, like, I catch up on my sleep, I get a lot of reading done, I catch up on any, like, shows that I've been watching, usually I'll catch up on a movie, because my mom and my dad like to watch movies, so we usually, yeah, we usually go to, like, a movie uh, at the theater, and for us, both my parents are immigrants, but they've been in the United States a really long time, so they've you know, adopted the Thanksgiving holiday, but also as a family, like, we've had conversations about what the holiday means and what it doesn't mean to us, and, you know, I come from a family that is uh, socially aware enough that we all agree that 
it's based on some pretty fucked up, not pretty, just fucked up false narratives, right? So, like, mm-hmm. we're all really aware of that. That's um, good. Right? So I think that's always really affirming to be able to share that with my family. Um, but I think for us, it's really rare to have time off together. And, you know, we take advantage of the fact that some of us are off. So, like, that usually falls, like, on me. My younger brother, he works for the service industry. Um, so he was not able to join us. And my uh-huh. sister, too, she had it off but wasn't able to travel. So the holiday doesn't always mean that we get to be together. But when we are, we just really try to enjoy each other and be appreciative of being all under the same roof at the same time, regardless of what the historic implications of that means. Right. Still trying to kind of have a celebration and just spend time with family. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny because we went to um, a birthday party in Juarez on Friday. So my my cousin, she's my prima hermana. Um, she's my cousin through my mom's brother. Mm-hmm. She has a she has two sons and one of her sons was turning eleven and so he had a Aww. he had a big birthday party at this really cool like like event space that has like a built in like gym for kids that like you you can crawl up walls and like oh that's awesome you know the like the bouncy bouncy houses mm-hmm. and it's just like a huge jungle gym. Um. It was really fun because I got to see a bunch of my cousins and one of my cousins, we were talking about Thanksgiving and he was telling me how there is a holiday in Mexico that was so problematic that they stopped celebrating it. Um, I can't think of, what was it? Dia de la Raza, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dia de la... something like that happened in Ecuador too. So Dia de la Raza, which basically honors... Um, uh, Cristobal Colon, right, mm-hmm. uh, used to be celebrated in Mexico, but the consciousness reached a point, the national consciousness reached a point where they'd had enough of the lie and they don't celebrate it anymore. So he was like, it would be great if the U.S. can get their act together to recognize the the real story of Thanksgiving. And I was like, yeah, when when are we going to get to a point where we just acknowledge the pain and like just not celebrate that anymore you know and I I think we're still we're still getting there with even Christopher Columbus Day Mm -hmm. like some cities like Chicago still celebrate and still observe Columbus Day where other cities are starting to move towards indigenous day indigenous day uh which is something that I hope our city adopts sooner than later or yeah, Indigenous Remembrance Day also. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you mentioned Dia de la Raza because I had, you know, you just stirred my memory. So I'm reading right now. And in Ecuador, apparently in 2012, um, so before that, we did have Dia de la Raza. And after that, it was modified into Dia de la Interculturalidad. So like Intercultural Day um, because... I guess people came together and wanted to give a new meaning to the day. I mean, I 
even Dia de la Raza, I have like what I'm, I'm interested in learning more about what that means because we can go into a whole tangent about my feelings around La Raza Cosmica. <laughs> Mm, and yeah, I, you guys have a lot to discuss there. <laughs> right. And I don't know if that's what it's insinuating. So if it is or isn't, we'll have to just leave it for another time. But at the very least, I am glad to know that, like, these types of narratives are being challenged, you know? It provides an example for how other countries can do that as well. When the issue of reparations has come up, there's been examples of other countries that have acknowledged the harm they've done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how how do you make amends on such a grand scale? But I, I think the very, like a lot of what we talk about on this show is to get to a place where you heal, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge the pain that's Absolutely. been caused. So I have hope. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I'm really proud. I'm really proud to to see that this is happening, um, you know, in Mexico and Ecuador and, you know, people saying, cause you know, a lot of people say that we can't change Thanksgiving cause it's something that we all grew up with and it's been celebrated for so long, but that's just, I mean, talk about gaslighting, right? Which we'll talk about in a little bit, like change can happen and we just have to continue putting pressure mm-hmm. and speaking up. So as we were talking about this, I I pulled up um, an article from last year that was published in ibtimes.com. And this article was written by Janice Williams. And it says, Every year on Columbus Day, Americans celebrate Christopher Columbus's first steps on land in the New World on October 12, 1492. But however, due to the Italian explorers' enslavement and mass murders of thousands of native and indigenous groups he encountered during his voyage, many Spanish-speaking countries and communities will not honor Columbus Day, but instead will celebrate Dia de la Raza. But... I wanted to mention, just like you said, in Ecuador, it's... Dia de la Interculturalidad y Plurinacionalidad. Awesome. And in other countries, in like Venezuela, for example, since 2002, Venezuela has celebrated the holiday on October 11th Mm. after the country's president renamed Dia de la Raza to Dia de la Resistencia Indígena. Or, oh, or day of indigenous resistance. So my hope is that Mexico gets there as well. Um, my cousin says they don't celebrate it at all anymore, like at all. At least, you know, his experience in Juarez was that they don't celebrate the day at all. Okay. Um, but I would be interested because, you know, words matter that um, it does become less of this, like, one race or whatever and really, like... Ecuador and Venezuela have shown being really specific about paying tribute and honor to the people that were most affected. Absolutely. And I think that what Ecuador, um, I mean, this is what the decree says, right? So this is like the public record um, about that the day would celebrate the coexistence of different nationalities um, and different um, indigenous communities, because there are so many still in Ecuador. Um, and the fact that we have to support for them, to, and the fact that we have to support them um, to conserve their own institutions, which I think is 
like so mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have as a 2010 Ecuador has a 40% indigenous population. Wow. So it's a big chunk of people. Yeah. Yeah. So many different languages. And I just think it's amazing that, um, it was recognized and just changed because things can happen. And just a shout out that, um, one of the activists that really brought this forward was an Afro Latino. So yeah, my family, we talk about these things, you know, um, but we also get together when we have a day off if possible and we love food <laughs> like many Mexicans do. <laughs> um, so we usually bond over a lot of eating and um, just hanging out. Um, so yeah, that was my weekend. What about you? What did I do? What did I do? So um, my Thanksgiving holiday was pretty chill. Um, usually, so like last year I was in Ecuador and prior to that, I pay a visit to Florida because my family lives there Mm -hmm. and they were all there this, um, year. So we were all over the place actually, but like my sister that lives here was there with her like in-laws. My other sister was spending with her boyfriend and then my other sister went to France with her family. So I feel like it's the first time that we're all, that none of us were together Um, and it felt, you know, a little sad at the beginning, but then I really wanted to just focus on myself and, you know, there's nothing really that I can do if I'm not with family. So I was really trying to focus on my self care and just relaxing and having those days off, um, to really like take care of myself. And it really did work. Like I watched a whole bunch of, like you, (laughs) I've been binge watched a whole bunch of shows that I haven't been, um, seeing lately so I did some Broad City Riverdale Mindhunter on Netflix which was really really scary at times but really mm. interesting um so yeah it was pretty relaxed just time with the cats and just with my partner we did cook a turkey and we have so many leftovers oh wow I know um so yeah it was really nice to just relax and like watch movies and read and just Um, I saw some friends, and it was just, yeah, pretty relaxed. Different than other years, but I can't complain. Have you cooked turkey before? I have. I have. Do you have, I was going to ask if you have any, like, special um, preparations that you do with the turkey. So it is my special recipe, but I'm going to share it with whoever listens because it's so delicious. I can't just leave it to myself. And maybe other (laughs) people do this, too. But I put um, beer in my turkey. Oh, is it like I've do you put the whole can in there cuz I've seen that too. No, that I've seen that too, but just like the actual beer, like when you put it in there, you know, it's all seasoned and stuff and then I put the beer in there and it kind of like creates all the juices and stuff and it's really really good. Oh, wow. My mom used to <laughs> inject our turkey with vodka. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Vodka? I just remembered that. <laughs> I'm so glad she doesn't do that anymore. Um, especially because that would trigger me a little bit. Yeah. But. I mean, I remember the, the turkey used to be so juicy when she would do that. But um, I also Blue remember we would pass out even. We would. Exactly. We would pass out a lot more. 
Um, I mean, I think turkey already makes you so sleepy, mm-hmm. right? There, there's it's there's something in the turkey that like releases tryptophan. Tryptophan. That's, that's right. And so like I know I I it was like the turkey apocalypse after <laughs> our meal. Everybody passed out. So I it only makes me think like man how much harder did we fall when she used to inject it <laughs> it was pretty funny um the first time i've heard that though yeah and then <laughs> this year my brother cooked it and he used so much butter and rosemary it was really delicious the the turkey was really juicy um but the outside was really crisp because of the butter um i love this the turkey skin. Yeah, me too. So <laughs> I I was in charge of all the sides. Um, do you have one that you usually prepare? I do, and I didn't prepare it this year, and my mom was so disappointed. Um, <laughs> I usually prepare this, like, really sinful macaroni and cheese that Ooh. has, like, um, it's a total ripoff of... I don't even say her name because she's so evil. Oh, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> but the white devil. Yes, but the <laughs> the recipe itself is like I modify it, of course, and it's so good. I mean, it's so bad for you. There's like six kinds of cheeses in there. I I don't even I don't even know how many sticks of butter, but it's Gosh. it's amazing. Like I make every time I make that macaroni and cheese, people are like. They, they a little bit of them dies and goes to heaven. <laughs> but I didn't do that this year. So this year, um, I just made like a macaroni salad, and we made uh, green bean casserole. Mm. And what else did we make? Stuffing, uh, mashed potatoes, uh, garlic mashed potatoes. Yeah, so all the fixings for sure. Yeah, and then like the next day we had menudo. Because we were all, like, kind of sick of turkey right away. So. I'm getting so hungry now. I know, me too. I'm going to have leftovers. (laughs) I know, I don't have any, so. (laughs) You'll have to eat twice as much for me. I'll eat in your honor. Thank you. (laughs) That's, like, the the best way anyone can honor me. (laughs) Consider it done. It's good to hear how you spent your time. It, it, it gives me a little bit of insight into, like, who you are. And it's also interesting t- to hear and know that you do cook. Not that I'm surprised, but I always like to know, like, who can cook and who can't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the cook in the house. Let's move into our next segment, which is the... Sana Sana Glossary. Yep. And so... With the Sana Sana Glossary, it's usually our way of deconstructing words that we have a hard time explaining, you know, at the top of our head. We recognize that a lot of the words that we use in everyday language are very jargony um, and very specific to people who work in the social justice sector, who care about social justice, or work in nonprofit fields. But because we care deeply about these issues, we also realize that in order for other people to get on the bandwagon, we have to use words to explain these concepts and ideas in ways that are more accessible. So that's why we have this segment. We are really trying to get to a place where we can talk about um, these terms as 
often as possible so that it becomes natural to talk about the complexities of them. And often some of these glossary terms are going to be used during our Corazón a Corazón, so we just want to give listeners a little bit of context. And like Tokaya said, just deconstructing the words into really simple terms that we can explain to, you know, just anyone, your uh, abuelita, your abuelito. Um, and like always, if you have um, a better or just an easier way to explain these terms, please let us know so we can share that with the Sana Sana community. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think the other piece of it, too, is we're always learning about these terms and these ideas. Um, so neither Adriana or I are professors by any means. We care a lot. We're nerds. We we love to pour over words and what they mean. But often, like, I think when we were talking about our first word, I realized, like, I don't think I'd ever really taken the time to look through, like, a dictionary or back through my history books to understand what where the word came from. And oftentimes when we use these words, like, I figure out the meaning based on, you know, my third grade reading skills of, context, like, looking for contextual clues and just making a educated guess on what the word means. And then I adopt it and just start using it without really taking the time to go back and, like, look at where the word came from. So that's another reason why I really love that we have this segment. Yeah, and really also understanding the fact that sometimes terms um, right evolve and change with time and depending on the context. Mm -hmm. I know that we were talking about that um, prior, so really um, bringing that in when we use, when we do the Sana Sana glossary. Definitely. So one of the wonderful things about the fact that we had to record this episode so many times um, and that we're recording it today instead of a few days ago is that there was a really great article that Teen Vogue uh, published over the holiday. That it is so good. That it just so plainly explained colonialism, which is our first word. I'm convinced that I... Like, we called it, we called it to come to us because we were doing so much research and so much um, work around trying to explain colonialism. So we wanted it, and Teen Vogue delivered, and we're linking the, the article on our show notes. Yeah, shout out to Teen Vogue for their continually amazing, they're just continually have been on it in the last year or so. And I want to say, I mean, maybe, probably, but they have now an editor-in-chief that is a black woman. Mm-hmm. So maybe that has a lot to do with their wokeness, their new wokeness. But I'm really happy about it. And so this article, Colonialism Explained by Jamila Osman, um, talks about the two major waves of colonialism and how they affect our world today. Teen Vogue um, describes colonialism as the control by one power over a dependent area or people. In practice, colonialism is when one country violently invades and takes control of another country, claims the land as its own, and sends people, quote-unquote, settlers, to live on that land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's like a very simple way of explaining it, right? Yeah, and just the rest is, like, really informative and very simple to understand, and they do a good job of explaining how colonialism is 
is manifested in our world today. Um, so definitely um, take a look and um, yeah, get informed. Yeah. Okay. So what's our next word? Our next glossary word is intergenerational trauma. Trauma manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And I think it's important to mention that there's like short-term responses mm-hmm. um, and then long-term um, yeah, like responses or symptoms of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the intergenerational trauma comes in. And actually in the Teen Vogue piece, they like loop in intergenerational trauma in, in terms of colonialism or related to colonialism. And they mention that the historic loss of lives, land, and culture is described as this intergenerational trauma. When we think about how uh, an entire group of people have lived through atrocities or have lived through slavery or have lived through rape or genocide that's been collectively inflicted on, on them, then that's when we start to get into t- intergenerational trauma, right? And how mm-hmm. that is passed down from generation to generation. Right. I think that that's key is the transmission of the of the trauma um, from generation to generation and that a, a lot of the times it's like unwitting unwittingly or like we don't really notice because it's just part of who we are um and that a really important thing um in order not to pass this to the other generation or your children is the importance of, of healing the generations or the people that came before us may not have known that they were dealing with trauma but often, even if they did know, they may have not had the resources or the time or the space to heal because they were really focused on survival, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The examples that always come to mind to me when talking about intergenerational trauma is um, people who went through the Holocaust, mm-hmm. um, people who have been part of massive wars or really any type of war, um, colonialism, and also slavery. And interesting enough, there's this term called post-traumatic slave disorder or post-traumatic slave syndrome, which really um, explains kind of in modern time, in contemporary time, how um, African Americans haven't really been able to heal from the trauma just because there hasn't been at time, even acceptance of what, of, you know, the massive impact of slavery upon this community. And really, there has not been the adequate support for these communities to heal. Mm. And often, that's on purpose, right? <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. It's a way of manipulation and to keep these communities oppressed. You're completely right. And one of the examples that also came to mind was uh, from this documentary uh, on Centoya Brown that I watched last week. And we're going to actually talk about Centoya Brown a little bit later in the show. But Centoya Brown is a young woman that is serving life in prison uh, for uh, killing a man that had hired her for sex work uh, when she was a child. She was 16 years old. And in the documentary, they were going into the history of her short life and 
They interviewed her, her biological mother, her adoptive mother, and her biological grandmother. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that um, the documentary made a point to show how Centoya had suffered from sexual assault and abuse, just like her mother had also uh, survived rape, and just as her grandmother had also survived rape. Um, and so that was a very specific example of uh, intergenerational trauma that was passed down in, in one family. And how even though Sintoya wasn't raised her entire life by her biological family, how that still affects someone's well-being. And our last glossary term um, for this episode is uh, a word that was actually coined through pop culture, and that is gaslighting. So I think that the easiest way for me to describe gaslighting is when someone is basically making you think that you're crazy, right? So there's an abuser and there's a victim in this um, situation, and the abuser is manipulating the victim through gaslighting and making them feel like they're not in control or they're just whatever they think is, is wrong. So basically making them feel like they're crazy. Yeah, they'll basically undermine their entire experience or will deny them their, their the right to have a point of view or perspective. Right, really invalidating experiences that often are traumatic. And so the word itself comes from a 1938 play and then black and white movie that came out shortly thereafter called Gaslight. And it starred Ingrid Bergman. And in the movie, it's it's about a couple, um, a couple, and the man in the couple gaslights the wife the entire time. The movie itself, there's a like a chandelier that's made of gaslight, and there would be flickering flames, or you know the the lights would dim. And when the wife would comment or ask about it, the husband who was making that actually happen denied that that was happening. He was like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you're going mad. And that was just like one way that he was trying to invalidate her her reality. So there were other things like he moved picture frames, um, all these other little strange tricks that he was playing on her to try to get her to think that she was going crazy. Um, and so the concept wasn't created in the movie itself. It had been, you know, gaslighting as a tactic has been around since the history of abusers. And then it, you know, psychology's used it. And it has recently come back up quite a bit um, because of the current administration's uh, skill in gaslighting uh, our entire society. <laughs> um, it's been used in a lot of articles uh, that talks about um, how he, you know, will do one thing and then there's proof that he's done it. Uh, but he'll deny that he actually said that or did that or 
that the media is lying. So it's it's a very um, powerful, irrelevant. irrelevant, but a very powerful tactic that abusers will use because anyone can be susceptible to it. Uh, and the and I would even say that in the recent kind of wave of accusations against men uh, who have sexually assaulted or abused women, mm-hmm. there has been a lot of gaslighting techniques being used as well. I think often when we are living in a society that is is so ingrained with misogyny and racism, um, people's experiences are questioned. Uh, so, like women, um, and I'm yeah, and I want to say not just people, but kind of like definitely women, minority, and oppressed populations' experiences, because when the gaslighting happens, kind of like at an institutional level. Um, or system-wide, I feel like, you know, who are the ones who are always um, bearing the brunt of that is kind of the people that I just mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And I guess what I was just going to say is that this happens at a societal level, um, but also I I want to be careful not to make it so that we think only I'm putting this in quotes, evil people use gaslighting. Mm. I think um, everyday people are very capable of gaslighting other people. And sometimes it's intentional. Um, and and usually when we talk about gaslighting, it is this like intentional manipulation. But oftentimes um, we gaslight people because of our own ingrained isms. And so instead of actually listening to folks when they're telling us of an experience, we, because of our own discomfort, will deny that that's what they, that they're feeling. Um, or even think about an instance where you have been called out and you get defensive and you deny that that's what you're doing. That is a form of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So I just want to put that out there because I think uh, we'll, we'll get into this a little more later on in the show as well. But um, we're all accountable and capable of hurting other people. And so the sooner we can become aware of our own problematic behavior, <laughs> um, the sooner that we can get to a place of healing and making amends to other folks that we may have hurt or harmed in our lives. Yeah, so... Just because we're talking about this and kind of mentioning it in the show does not mean that we are not at fault. I feel like it's specifically I'm talking about it. So if I gaslighted anyone, I'm deeply sorry. And I'm trying to really take all these terms and what we talk about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the point, right? I, I, I think I love that you said you bring that up. You know, we're. We're as problematic as the next person, and part of healing is really building up our self-awareness and doing it in a place that's safe and... Um, and in community. And in community, absolutely. So, I and I always talk about that that's what real love is, right? Is holding people to high standards so that we can grow to be our best selves. Mm-hmm. And so when you really love someone, you help them get there. So those are our three glossary terms this uh, episode. And if you have anything to add to any of them or have ways that um, you talk about them with your family, especially one that I, I'm not sure how you say in Spanish is gaslighting. 
because that Ooh. that's such a pop culture reference in English. I don't know if there's an actual like an exact translation. I don't I don't think so. I don't know, but that's that's definitely a good question. So if anyone knows, please let us know. Welcome to Chiona Corner. In which we both cry, talk shit, and bitch. Yep. Because it's healing to get that poison out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, Tokaya, I, I was hoping that you would kick it off with uh, what we are um, honoring this week and uh, where we've come full circle. Okay, so um, I'm sure some of you have seen this on the news and social media, but it's around the Keystone Pipeline leak um, that happened a couple of weeks ago. So um, this was particularly devastating because of it being, you know, Thanksgiving, almost a year um, had passed, um, almost a year had passed from all the activism and resistance in Standing Rock. Um, so for me, it was kind of a slap in the face, right? So many activists and so many Native American communities, indigenous communities um, had warned us that this would happen. And so to see it in the news, it was just completely devastating. So what had happened is that 210,000 gallons of oil leaked um, from the Keystone Pipeline in South Dakota. Um, so, and a lot of what I'm reading and what I've read is basically that they're still investigating and they really don't know what's going to happen. Um, obviously, they're trying to figure out how to clean it, etc. And um, yeah, I know that you were there at Tukaya last year, um, but I just wanted to mention that this is happening um, because sometimes the way the news covers it is not um, very accurate. But in any case, if you all have any ways for us to help, let us know. If we could just listen, if we could just listen to communities that know their homes the best, that know their own, um, com you know, they know their own land the best, um, so many of the originators of the movement were women um, and, and grand, you know, mothers, grandmothers. Just, if we could just listen to them, uh, so much pain would be avoided, you know. And it just blows my mind that, that we would be willing to risk people's lives and mother earth for what you know it just it's so infuriating and and devastating i'm just really heartbroken over this and my my thoughts are are with the courageous people that continue to bring awareness and um continue fighting for the rights to live in harmony on their own land There's it's just one more t like i feel like yet again we undermined um indigenous people mm -hmm. their land and 
what they teach us, right? Because they said that this was going to happen and it's happened. So it just, it really, it really shows that colonialism in different ways is still happening. Like this is a prime example in my eyes. Yeah. Because they're yet again, like taking this land that is precious to them yeah, and to all of us, it's the earth. Like we need it to survive and to live. Um, and you know, it just continues Yeah, for capitalist gains and just a lot has not changed. Yeah. Um, so another thing that I'm thinking a lot about this week, um, is about Pedro Infante. So Pedro Infante, um, had his 100th birthday, uh, or he would have been 100 years old, November 18th. And to commemorate the birthday, Google um, featured a doodle that honored Pedro Infante um, that day. And um, on that day, I got lost in a sea of feels. Partially because I was really touched to see the doodle. I I grew up uh, with movies of Pedro Infante. He is a Mexican star from the black and white era of, you know, really the height of um, Mexican cinema, like the golden era of Mexican cinema. And he's he was a... Um, a movie star, he was a uh, very talented singer and a boxer and a pilot. He was he was like a very well-rounded Damn. renaissance man of his time, <laughs> right? I think what really hit me about it though is as I was like really lost in the nostalgia of of him being a doodle, I started looking through his biography, which reminded me of all of these things that he used to be, right? That he was a boxer, that he had been in a plane crash. He actually died when he was 39, and he died in a plane crash, which is already so dramatic and so, like, much of a movie unit of itself. (laughs) And he had actually been in a plane crash before and had survived. Um, How is that a thing? (laughs) I know. Not only had he survived, he, like... He, like, walked all bloody and bruised and battered for two miles to get help for the woman that he was dating at the time um, who had also been in the plane crash. So, like, (laughs) he lived quite a life. And it also reminded me how he used to have this reputation of being a womanizer. And so I just started thinking, like, oh, if if he was still around or if he was around in present day in the same, like, way, would he have been a man who fell because of the Me Too movement? Because as I was reading, you know, anytime we, we talk about men as womenizers, it's, like, often looked at, like, like it's this, like, thing to be proud of. Ew, but no. But, you know, like, when, when you talk about it as a society, it's like, oh, he's a ladies' man, right? Like, he's right. got he's got a Duh, lot of, he's got a lot of luck with the ladies. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think as I've grown up and, like, just experienced the world as a woman, oftentimes the women's side of the story is left out. So anytime... Now, in in the experience that I'm living today, anytime someone 
is referred to as a womanizer, I always want to dig deeper. And so that's what I did with Pedro Infante when I like started to look, look through his bio again. I was reminded that that was something that he was known for, and I started looking to see, like, who had, who had he been married to? And, you know, it turns out he had a lot of kids by a lot of different women. I think some of them he didn't even know about till they were adults. Um, he cheated on his wife uh, quite a bit. And one of the partners that he had, um, that he ended up having a child with, was 16 years old when they when they got together. And I think he had met her when she was only 14. So, uh, you know, just real problematic behavior um, that I would call abusive, you know, um, regardless of, you know, how this person remembers it uh i don't want to take that away from them you know the the woman uh in, that I'm, I'm mentioning here um but she she was recounting on one of the websites that her mother when she found out because she didn't know that he was married when they met um his her mother was so angry and like tried to basically um cut off you know the the relationship to protect her young daughter. Um, but I just think about, like, how unacceptable that is today. Um, and, you know, regardless of what time in history, it should have been unacceptable because she was still so young and... and uh, A child. A child. I would say. Yeah, a child. So it was just hard, right? It was hard to process all of that and to reconcile... Um, who he was for me growing up and the reality of what that is. And, and it's just another reminder of being careful to idolize or, or make a hero out of anyone, out of anyone. Um, because as humans, we're just so problematic, right? And I know I was talking to you about this before, but like I've been trying to do work around being less self-righteous, but still holding people accountable for their sins and their harms to people, especially when it's abusive in nature. Um, Right. So like Pedro Infante, I think is just one example for me of like doing that work. Um, It's a nuanced, it's a nuanced work. You know, it's, it's about um, believing in the ability of people to change. So like Pedro Infante we can't have this conversation with him because he's long gone, right? But uh-huh. um, where do we, where do we call that line where someone is beyond hope of changing, um, and still calling out abusers, right? Or if we're gonna remember someone, how do we remember their whole story, right? Not just their contributions, right, but not, also the harm that yeah, they did on absolutely. people. Absolutely. Or not just their image, right? And I think that this conversation really stirs up, right, the, um, the conversations that were had and that are still being had, uh, they're still happening around Bill Cosby, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he was everyone's, you know, especially like the black community's kind of hero, right? Um, you know, the Cosby show and just everything that he did, um, people have it 
kind of in your heart, right? Because it's part of, if you grew up with it and if it's something that you really admired and then when all the allegations came forward of all these women who were sexually abused and raped by him and the fact that no one believed them um, and still he got away with it, um, like that I feel like is an instance in which he completely denies it and going back to gaslighting, these women were um, gaslighted or gaslit. I don't know which one's the correct wording, um, but that would be one that I say there's no there's no turning back for him, and there's no way that he can really he will ever admit to it. Right, because he continues to harm. Right, absolutely. And another example that I thought of was um, Chimamanda Adichie, but she's a writer. <clears throat> And so I love her. I've read many of her books, um, really love, you know, the way that she writes and what she writes about. She's been really upfront with being a feminist. Um, but she had said something about uh, the transgender community, specifically transgender women, um, and kind of along the lines that transgender women are not real women. Um, and it was, it was it was like a complicated thing that she said I don't even remember but it was something along the lines that if you're a man you have that experience prior and if you transition like you still have kind of that experience something around around those lines like I'm not really explaining it well but maybe we'll look it up and post a link but I think that she responded to that and said that, you know, she's open to having conversations around it and that she's willing to learn, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that specifically in this, like, I couldn't write her off and say, you know, as much as I am a defender and an ally of the transgender community, I couldn't just write her off because she might be in the process of learning and she is a human. And I know that I've made really stupid comments and have said things in the past and present that are not right and I continue to also learn so like putting myself in her shoes and trying to really understand is someone who I think like this would be an example of someone who hopefully is learning from her mistakes or from whatever she said and really trying to to learn about the issue right and I think it's important just to to have these conversations openly right and with an open mind and also at the very same time honoring your boundaries and um you know understanding where your limits are uh towards tolerating abuse right um and so I think for some people um this would absolutely be a deal breaker that they would have to walk away from this person because it's violent. It's, it's regardless of where the person is, they, they will experience it as violence. Right. Um, so I just wanted to bring this up because I think these conversations are so necessary. Um, I'm still rec, I don't have the answers. I don't have the solution. Um, in that, really working towards reconciling how I get away from my own self-righteousness and um, throwing people away, right? Um, Or quote-unquote canceling them for problematic behavior, but also still very much holding people accountable 
and walking away or drawing a line when I need to for my own um, survival or self-care or self-preservation. Self-preservation. Um, it's not an easy answer, uh, and it's not a clear-cut answer for everyone. I think it really does. Um, it really depends on a case-by-case basis. Uh, and, I mean, within your own circle of family and friends and loved ones, it I think that having that love is really what makes the difference, right? Um, and even then, because if you really love someone, it, it hurts especially a lot that you might need to walk away, right? Um, yeah. Or it'll be that love that really keeps you... Um, motivated to call that person in and help them get to a place where they learn. And I'm just grateful for the people that have done that with me, right? That have um, been patient with me and shown me when I'm wrong or have even had the courage to tell me, hey, you're you're wrong because I have a very, uh, tengo un carácter, right? Like, <laughs> tengo un carácter fuerte and not everyone um, will, like, tell me to my face if I'm wrong. So, um I just wanted to offer up that like little bit of reflection and uh, emotional roller coaster that the Pedro Infante doodle <laughs> did on me. <laughs> Google does it again. Dude, Google does it again. So I think this takes us to our last part of this um, Chiyona Corner, which is kind of the news that has been going around. Um, about Centoya Brown, mm-hmm. and I know that you brought it up. Uh, so, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of background, and then I will follow up with interesting stuff that I've been reading about celebrities? Sure. So, as I had mentioned um, during the Santa Santa glossary, Centoya Brown is a young woman. I believe she's twenty nine now, who is serving uh, a life sentence in prison for killing a man who um, had hired her to, had hired her for sex work. Um, The thing that I think is important to talk about is that Centoya at the time was only 16 years old and um, I don't, based on the evidence or based on the the documentary that I watched, um, she was not exercising sex work from her own free will. She had been um, under the... Right, she was trafficked. She was being sex trafficked by um, a man named Cutthroat who, you know, she first started dating, I think, when she ran away from home, um, and then he quickly became her pimp. Um, And so, you know, Centoya had gone through a very horrific series of events. Um, She had been raped multiple times, uh, not just by Cutthroat, but by a lot of the men that, you know, she was sold to. And it's just a very clear example of how the justice system is so fucked um, and is not there to protect uh, people of color, but especially children of color. Um, it's it's just devastating uh, that she has had to go through this. 
And, I mean, if you watch the documentary, you'll see as well that she's been, like, she's one of those examples of, like, people who, um, if, if you're going to get into the respectability of all of this, but, like, she's, she's a model, quote-unquote, model prisoner. She's, uh, really turned her life around in prison. Um, she's working towards, um... You know, she's gotten her college degree, and she's she continues to uh, educate herself, and she continues fighting for her liberation. Um, and so it's just, this documentary was actually made in 2011. So, like I said, she's 29 now, and she's been in prison since she was 16 years old. That's so horrible. And I just want to mention that this is not something new in terms of, Femmes and women who are survivors of abuse, who are trying to defend themselves, um, and in in that process commit a crime, quote unquote. Um, because I know of the case of Cece McDonald, who is a pretty big one, who is a transgender African American um, woman, who the same thing happened. She was trying to defend herself from abuse and violence and. Um, killed someone and ended up in prison because of it. And it's happened so many times in cases of domestic violence and abuse. So it's just, like you said, the system is very much messed up and fucked up. But there's been a lot of talk and like the resurgence of this case, which is pretty old because a lot of celebrities, including Quinn Rihanna and Kim Kardashian and just everyone in between really has been reposting it. Um, to kind of create more awareness of what of what's happening. And one, like, image specifically kind of called my attention and was one that was Brock Turner and kind of just remember, like, um, kind of helping us remember that he only was sentenced to six months in jail for, mm-hmm. you know, rape. Um, and then this is happening to someone who's trying to defend themselves a child um who's a victim of sex traffic and it's just very much shows the dynamics and who the criminal justice system is trying to protect Mm-hmm. yeah and i mean um it's interesting that this is this specific case of centoya brown um is making a resurgence i don't know how or why kim kardashian um, came across this specific case because, like, even the documentary that I mentioned was made in 2011. So it's been even several years since that that movie came out. Um, so who knows how Kim Kardashian, like, became aware of it. But because of her, a lot of celebrities have been um, posting about uh, Centoya Brown. And... Hey, <laughs> as problematic as Kim Kardashian is, right? If she's using her privilege for for good, uh, in this case, right, I'll support that. Um, yeah, I know that Centoya Brown could definitely use Kim Kardashian's attorney. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so um, I'll be keeping my um, eyes on that story because I was really touched by her story and if you haven't watched the documentary i really recommend it it's called 
me facing life, Centoya's story. We're going to find the link and post it in the show notes in case you're interested in watching it as well. If you're a fan of Locatora Radio like we are, I would also recommend as a resource uh, checking out their latest episode where they talk a lot about different examples of women who have been found guilty of self-defense, basically. Oh, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, the episode is called Femme Revenge. This episode, we're really honored to have Saida Kelly join us for our Corazón a Corazón. Saida Kelly, also known as Bad Dominicana, is an Afro-Dominicana mommy, writer, artist, Mujerista, award-winning social cultural critic, and international speaker. Born in New York City and raised between Puerto Plata, Dominican Republic, and the Bronx by her mother and auntie, who are both creative Renaissance women. She writes what many call a very candid advice column at thenewinquiry.com and is creator and author of Bad Dominicana, an Afro-Latina feminist blog and Twitter with a large, constantly growing following comprised of everyone from editors of, ma of major publications and scholars to teen girls. The internationally trending hashtags, hashtag maybe he doesn't hit you, and its Spanish language version, hashtag quizá no te pegue, on how gendered non-physical abuse manifests in daily life were also authored by her. They lent a voice to tens of thousands of women sharing their stories and experiences with abuse across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This led to her TEDx talk in Mexico on the subject as well. She has been featured in a number of publications such as the New York Times, Latina, Complex, The Fader, Vibe, Cosmopolitan, Time, BBC, and many more for her social cultural analysis and art. In her writing, dynamic use of social media, And at speaking events, she employs indigenous-styled storytelling, no-holds-barred analysis of abuse culture, colonialism, social power dynamics, and critique of media and pop culture. She aims to pick apart white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy from an anti-colonial Afro-Latina perspective. Her visual art is dedicated to highlighting Afro-Latina and women of color's beauty and is very much tied to her writing. And now, without further ado, in her own words... Saida Kelly. I'm just a regular, marginal Afro-Latina who's like a single mom who's trying to survive a lot, a lot of shit. My blog started that way. It was just me venting and trying to process what was happening to me, what has been happening to me my whole life. My Twitter continues to be that. Everything that I do, whatever comes to me, like opportunity-wise, like I'm really grateful, but it's not something that I sought out, you know? Like I respect when people are out here, um... When they're trying to build brands or something, you know, like literally they are trying to be visible and they are trying to have reach, for example. Mm -hmm. But that's not a thing that I ever set out for, basically. Like I'm just a regular person who got a Tumblr and a Twitter account and started talking a lot of shit that happened to be relevant to a lot of people. Like I never expected anybody to care or to listen. And still, I'm really just trying to survive. I have not arrived like at like full humanity or something and I don't think that that's possible I'm still struggling with income I'm I've been uninsured like without health insurance like for like the last 10 years when I tweet or blog or whatever I do when I talk like I'm not talking theory 
basically. I'm talking about the shit that I'm going through right now today <laughs> and that, like, people around me are going through right now today, you know? Like, a lot of people act like that's theoretical or, like, I'm far removed from it or something. Like, you don't get that I am there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, that's, like, who I am as a person. Like, everything else just kind of came on its own, which I'm, like, super grateful for. Like, I feel really blessed and everything, but, you know, I don't define myself by that because that's not why I'm here. So I'm a big fan of Locatora Radio, and they adore you as well. And one thing that I like about when they talk about you is really how you are documenting your life because you don't see it anywhere. Um, right. And I think that's so important to acknowledge that you're setting an example for a lot of people who don't see themselves in these mainstream narratives. Yeah, I guess I um, that's not something I really thought about either. I knew that it's like in a way when I started my blog, you know, it was like I was birthing myself. It's like I just felt like, you know, if I'm not anywhere, um, do I even exist? And like, first of all, I have problems and issues with the fact that things have to be written down in order to be, you know, um, in existence because that's mad colonial. Like, did we not have storytelling narratives before that? Not everybody had written languages, but we carried on stories and history, like, orally, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, what happens is when those kinds of histories are disavowed, then basically you don't exist if you're not on paper. And right now, you know, some people might still say we don't exist because I'm not in a proper book. They're like, you should make a book because that will make it legit. And it's like, you know, that's not going to make my life legit. My life is what it is anyway. And we have been here for like the last um, 600 years going through this shit. So, yeah, it's like maybe I am sort of writing myself into history. I did that by accident. Like now if you look up Sahira Kelly, there's going to be things about me or something. But like that wasn't intentional. So we've been asking people, what does mental health mean to you? And what does healing mean to you? In regards to healing, if you could talk about your journey. Healing, like, that's a very fraught topic for me, I guess, because um, how do you heal when, like, every single day there's, like, a trillion new wounds inflicted just because you're you and you're trying to live? Um... I feel like through my blog, I did some sort of process of healing. Um, I was going through a lot of things. I was going through an abusive situation. I sort of um, like wrote down the things that were happening to me and looked up information on it and confirmed that, you know, this was an abusive situation because, you know, when it's non-physical, there are questions on it. Like, is this really happening or not? And it was. And through that, I kind of processed and, like, rebuilt myself in a way. It was like a phoenix kind of a thing. Like, I really reached the point where I did not want to live anymore. And I only stayed alive because I have a kid to take care of. I'm not about to leave, like, a little brown girl in the world by herself when nobody else knows what the fuck is going on or cares, you know? But basically, I guess I sort of healed But 
It was also unintentional. Um, it, it really was just me trying to survive and stay alive. I'm pretty sure I still have things to deal with. Like, I still have PTSD. I don't know that that is going to go away. And like I said, every day there are new aggressions, large and small, just because I'm an Afro-Latina in the world. So healing is like a never-ending project, and it's just like... I don't know. I don't even mean to sound depressing, but it's just, like, really sad when you're, like, constantly, like, like, if they were physical wounds, it's, like, you're constantly, like, patching up and dressing stuff and, like, you know, new shit arises as you are doing that and then you have to patch that up and it's, like, that's kind of how I feel at this point. I don't feel like we're allowed to be whole because of that. Um, we're always in a process of healing. And sometimes we get that wrong because we aren't taught how. And as far as what is mental health, you know, the Latin American community, um, at least with Dominicans, it's like we don't even talk about that. When we talk about mental health, it's like the only way that people consider you as needing help is if you are on the street, like rolling around naked or something like, you know, when you already are at the brink, like there is nothing before that stage where people are like, you need help. There's no such thing as depression. There's no such thing as anxiety. There's no such thing as, you know, being bipolar or something until it gets really, really serious and like you reach a breaking point and you have a freaking breakdown. It doesn't matter to anybody. And then we have like super high suicide rates and people are like, I have no idea why. I never noticed. But like literally in the Dominican community, you're not even allowed to be sad unless you're grieving. Like, that's it. You don't have no other reasons. And I mean, colonized people have a shit ton of reasons to be sad about. And it's, like, cool when you, like, stay positive and everything because that's also a survival mechanism for us. But, like, we're not afraid to feel things. We are not afraid to have any other issues. Like, you know, I discovered I had anxiety issues um, when I was, like, almost 30, even though I dealt with it my whole life. I never had a name for it until I heard other people who were diagnosed talk about it. And I'm like, but... I've been dealing with that same shit, except without any, medic any, without any medication or help. Um, depression, like, I've known depression deeply my whole life. And, like, that's another thing that, you know, Dominicans are just like, get the fuck out of bed. Go get some sun. Like, that doesn't fix it. You still want to die on the inside. So all of those are really, really difficult topics when there's really no framework for you to deal with them, period. There's no, like, this is how you properly heal without hurting yourself or other people around you. There's no, this is what mental health is. These are the things that you could possibly be going through. This is how you can get help before you have a full-on breakdown. And, you know, after you have a full-on breakdown, then it's like you're discarded. You don't matter anymore. You're just a loca, and nobody listens to anything you say because somehow, you know, you don't have a voice anymore. Um, nothing is reliable. So, yeah, I guess those are my thoughts on that right now. So much of what you're saying, too, resonates with what you talk about all the time regarding abuse culture and colonialism. You know, like when you're talking about all the little paper cuts, like death by paper cut, really. Right. Yeah. You mentioned that colonized people have a lot to be depressed about. Can you provide us a little bit more context? I mean... We're coming from, like, literally 600 years of, like, intergenerational trauma. We were massacred. We were enslaved. We were forced into a machista system when we didn't have that before, at least off my island, you know? Mm -hmm. We've ended up, like, inflicting all this stuff on each other, all the 
colorism that they taught us, all the racism and anti-blackness that they taught us, all the machismo that they taught on us, like we're violent to each other now. You know, we don't necessarily need them anymore for guidance because they taught us well enough. They forced us into that. I mean, we're left basically in tatters, you know, after colonialism, it's like, you know, they came and they um, pillaged and they brought slaves and they took gold and whatever they could get. And then they just left and they just left us in shambles. Latin America is still in shambles. And now people act like, you know, we did that on our own. Like we're in shambles because we're stupid and we just don't know better or something. And not because they left us in that kind of a state. So we have that. You know, that inevitably affects us every single day. You know, all these elitist white standards or whatever that cut you down and tell you that you're not as human as the ruling class. And then we have the fact that, you know, we're out here struggling for like basics like food, shelter, water, healthcare, education. We are traveling over oceans, traveling through entire continents risking life and limb, risking being eaten by sharks, being raped and killed, just to have a little bit more food, you know? Like, all of that shit is depressing as fuck. Like, Latin Americans don't usually end up in the U.S. because they were doing so fucking great back home. I feel like the whole migration is beautiful, obscures that, like, we didn't migrate by choice a lot of the time. Like, we're economic refugees, if not straight-out refugees. Like, sure, there's, like, Latinos who are, like, comfortable back home and just move to the U.S. because they feel like it, but that's not the majority. We're here because of sad fucking reasons. We get to be sad about that shit. We get to be stressed, and it's like none of that is really respected or really elaborated on. You know, it's just like we're so busy surviving that we don't get to do that. Because if you stop to be sad, like, you might just, like, not make it. Can you speak to your experience in developing your own set of values and finding that voice? I honestly did not arrive there by choice either. At my core, I'm actually a quiet, shy, withdrawn individual. I would sit in a corner, keep to myself, and just um, work on my own little things that nobody would ever know about. You know, that would be me in in an ideal world. However, um, like, you know, and that was me when I was a child. However, that made me a target for a whole lot of violence. I looked like it was easy to do stuff to me. And that was, you know, from other children and from adults as well, you know. All of my childcare up until my grandmother was able to come to the States when I was already like 11 or something, um, they were all abusive. And it was because I was so quiet. They just assumed they could get away with it. Um, Then at school, kids bullied me because I was quiet, you know. And withdrawn, and I looked like I was easy to do stuff to. Eventually, I would say, like, maybe around 14, like, I developed a fucking attitude. I developed that hood chick attitude that you develop because you don't have a fucking choice. You know, that rough, I will get in your face, and I will, like, tell you the fuck off. Like, that kind of fucking attitude, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, again, that wasn't by choice. You know, then I was 15, and literally I was forced to, like, defend grown-ass women in my family who were being beat by men. At 15, I had to grab a fucking metal pipe, 
bust down a door with the fucking weight of my body and hit a grown-ass fucking man to get him the fuck out of the house. So it was just kind of like they created a monster. I didn't want to be that. And every time I feel like I want to put my weapons down because that shit is exhausting and I don't want to have to need them, I get hit again or somebody around me does and I fucking need them again and I pick them back up. So even then, like, if you look at when I first started blogging or even my presence online in the beginning, like, I was not at, I was trying to be nice. I was trying to be more agreeable. Mm-hmm. And you know what happened? I got shit tons of hate mail. And in my personal life, I kept getting shot on too, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there were so many abusive things happening. I had to learn to, like, open my mouth and just be a fucking lioness, you know? And, like, all fucks just kind of, like, vanished and like I am who I am now but like whatever I am now like that was a process and it was not even optional because I literally would not have survived if I had not learned to fight I don't want to fight and and I know that it seems like I want to fight everybody but it's like I don't want to have to fight but like if you keep coming for me like I am going to come for you mm-hmm. like that's basically what has happened in my life and at this point I'm like seen as like I don't know this big bad dragoness or whatever and it's like if i didn't have all these things constantly cutting at me like literally not just psychologically but like physically i wouldn't have to be that i could just be quiet and not worry about my humanity being trampled on i mean one of the reasons that i i look up to you is because i i see you as a lioness who is establishing her boundaries like you're so good at that at least from what the conversation yeah Yeah. it's just so much violation forced Mm -hmm. me to be like okay stop like whether it be in person or online thousands of people coming at you online it's like i learned to put a fucking block button i learned to be like stop i already know where you're going with this shitty ass fucking argument yeah like I had to learn that in order to survive, too. I didn't know how to set boundaries. In fact, I was dissuaded from setting them because that's how it is with us, you know? And that's what I want you to talk about. Like, what how, what lessons have you learned around establishing boundaries online and in, in your real life? It's I just mean, online so is real life, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's a lot of backlash if you, if you set said boundaries, mm-hmm. you know? People get even more violent. Basically, everything is bad. If you don't set them, then they'll, like, trample all over you. And if you set them, then, like, they'll retaliate because how dare you not allow them access to you anymore. I guess that's what I learned. I choose to just set them and just, like, throw caution to the wind. Just, like, fuck it. Because, like, they've done so much shit to me. Like, I don't even care anymore. What else can you possibly do? Like... The stuff that people have done to me, like, in person and, and on the internet, like, no tiene nombre. It's just, like, um, there's a history to all of it. I'm never reacting to just one thing. It's a cumulative reaction. It's, like, literally thousands of people fucking with you every day. So, like, yeah, I just, I don't feel like I have a choice in the matter if I'm actually going to continue being visible and survive this. Because I think about quitting every single day, but at this point, so much is tied to it, like, as far as my livelihood, that I feel like I can't just disappear. And at the same time, I feel like disappearing would be like letting them win. Mm -hmm. They already want Afro-Latinas invisible. So, you know, it's hard. It's like a rock and a hard place. But, like, 
there's no other way. Yeah. I think one of the things about seeing you publicly set those boundaries is so healing for people who are learning how to establish those boundaries for themselves and to be able to call abuse abuse, right? And so um, I know that you created this hashtag, maybe he doesn't hit you, hashtag quizá no te pegue, and you were just in Mexico City um, doing a TED Talk around this very hashtag. Can you talk about the greatest lessons that you've learned from the conversations that sparked from that hashtag? That hashtag, um, really, it began with me just um, posting tweets um, that started with maybe it doesn't hit you, but... And then I would just, like, say something that I personally went through that I saw women around me go through. And my friend Lauren Chief Elk, um, Native American woman, she was like, you're already repeating the same phrase in every post, and this is great. Let's just make it hashtag. And I was like, okay. So she started posting her examples, too. We didn't really, like, think anything of it. Um, it was just, like, to record the stuff that we had been through or something. A few days later, there was, like, hundreds of entries. And, like, a week later, there were, like, tens of thousands of entries on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And, like, every time I check the hashtag, there's, like, hundreds more. Like, it just has continued. It, like, snowballed. There were, like, a ton of not just women, but also, like, non-binary and, like, queer men who were, like, I finally have words for what has been happening or this happened to me and I like was afraid to talk about it I didn't even know like it was a thing um that was really shocking and humbling when I did it I was still going through an abusive situation that I thought I was never going to get out of so to see that take off and then like I don't know a year and a half later suddenly I'm in Mexico doing a TED talk on it like I never in my life would have imagined that Um, I don't want to say that it was worth it because it, going through that stuff is never worth it you know it's not worth doing a TED talk It's not worth doing a hashtag, but it happened. And, like, I'm just glad that other people could benefit or get something from, like, what were really my struggles. So one of the reasons you've changed my life is because you've allowed me to see clearly some of the bullshit that Latinos, especially non-black Latinos, right? Like, all the work we have to do. Uh-huh. And, you know, you're so amazingly clear about always speaking from your Afro-Latinidad um, as a woman, right, as well. Um, and so much of that is you always explain, too, that that's coming from your anti-colonialism. Can you elaborate on what that looks like when we're really shifting cultures around abuse within our own culture? I mean, we didn't just arrive here in a vacuum. Like, it didn't just happen. This is, like, 600 years of violence and, like, still presently a lot of effort going into silencing and erasing the same people that colonizers silenced and erased. Um, we're still replicating all this stuff. My favorite example is, like, from my island. Like, we don't know much. We don't mention indigenous people that much on my island. Like, as far as names, we only know a few names because all of that was robbed. But what we do know is, like, about Anacaona. And she was, pre-1492, she was a chief. She was a songwriter. She was a poet. There was equity, you know, before colonizers came. And then they came. And they offered her two options. She could be a domestic slave wife to a Spaniard, or she could die. Now, being that she was not used to this shit, that was not her life before, she was not about to put up with it. 
she chose death. They literally burned her at the stake. So, you know, when we talk about all the stuff that's happening right now, it's like, these were things that, like, literally people were like, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. And we look at how, you know, we're still domestic slaves in our houses as women or whatever. That wasn't, like, a biological thing. That was, like, violently imposed. Like, if you don't, I'm going to literally kill you. And now we see it as just, like, the natural roles of people. So I guess what I mean by that is, like, none of this stuff is natural. When they brought over slaves and made them the lessers, that wasn't natural. That was violently imposed. So, like, you know, as far as... Um, what Afro-Latinos go through in Latin America, what women go through in Latin America, all of that stuff was colonially imposed. That wasn't us before. Like, you know, I've had dudes be like, that's in the blood. And like, when I explain the Anacaona story, it's like they take a step back, like, okay, this isn't mine, so we can discard it. We can think about culture in a different way. Like, there's beautiful things, but that's not one of them, and it's not even ours to keep. We don't have to. We don't need it. It's not necessary. No, and I love that because I think sometimes I get stuck thinking about the trauma that gets passed down and I sometimes attribute it to like, oh, so like my family's Mexican, right? I'm like, that's so Mexican when I see something dysfunctional and thinking about like, well, not really. That's like colonialism that comes from the colonizer, Uh (laughs) you know, just to be able to really name that. Yeah, like we internalize it like it's ours, like it's right. in our roots, and it's like it's not. We don't yeah. have to. We don't have to own that because it's not even ours. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Oh, that's that's big. That's, big. that's a big one for me. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how people can support your work. Yeah, Patreon is a huge form of support, like patreon.com slash bad underscore Dominicana. Um, My shop where I have like a bunch of um, like Latino and empanada print stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of my artwork is shopzahirakelly.com. In general any bookings or like stuff that people can send my way always helps too like that literally helps me stay afloat and support my child and just you know generally if you see stuff that um jobs or anything that reminds you of me and that you know it's like that is how people help me and like I really appreciate that and in general just um just plain old being nice and not being a shithead like everybody else. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess for right now, that's kind of it. Uh, last question is, how do you take care of yourself when you need to take a break, when you are, you know, taking time for yourself? What does that look like? It is so hard for me as a single mom to have time for myself. I mean, what that looks like often is basically me just kind of like trying to be alone. Even if not alone, like even if my daughter is always like, say, sitting next to me in bed with me, like playing on her computer, just like taking the time to breathe and not deal with anybody else. Like, that in itself is huge. Um, Being around my femme friends who are absolutely amazing is always, like, a renewing kind of a thing for me, you know? Like, I really feel like they give me... Like, they literally give me life when I feel like I don't have much left. Other femme support is basically everything to me, and I offer it as well. Um, But, you know, self-care, you know? We can talk about sheet masks or all that other stuff, but 
even that is so inaccessible to so many people. Like, how do you even do it? You know, sometimes it's just like sitting in a corner by yourself is the most you're going to get. And like, if that's it, then do it. And that's kind of where I'm at. I want to thank you for taking time, for being flexible. Also, we just want to acknowledge you and say we love you. We don't know you, but we love you. And we are so so happy you're on this earth. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. So once again, a big, big thank you to Saida for taking time out of her very busy day to spend uh, it with us at Sana Sana Podcast. And for sharing all of her knowledge with us. I feel like she definitely schooled us, took us to church, wherever it may be. But um, I just really appreciate her taking the time to share her knowledge, right? Yes. And as we said earlier, just please support um, her support all the women that we feature on our podcast um, all the women and femmes it really um, is this you can support in so many ways as we had mentioned so uh, we hope that you'll support her and now we are moving to our final segment which is Colita de Rana so for this episode uh, we wanted to share uh, some resources that we hope will bring a little bit of lightness to your season. <laughs> Especially those with a seasonal depression like myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're just recommending a couple of things. or just talking about a couple of things that are making us um, enjoy life and laugh and just um, relax. And for me, it is the newest season of Broad City, which I think is season three. Um, And like I mentioned, I have been um, binging um, on uh, some shows that are my favorite, and Broad City is one of them. Um, I really love the show, and um, I think that season three is my favorite so far, which I didn't think was going to be the case, Um, but I was really, really happy to see specifically an episode in which Ilana, who is one of the main characters, um, talks about depression, right? So for those of you who have seen the show or kind of know about the show, it basically follows two best friends who are just like silly, ridiculous stoners that live in New York. Um, and, um, Ilana in particular, um, is like this really outgoing, bubbly, funny person. And the fact that they're kind of delving into her depression was really amazing to me um, because it kind of goes beyond the fact that people with depression can't control it. And specifically for someone that's always outgoing and is passing as like being happy to really um, discuss depression um, was really powerful for me. For me, um, what else? I can't wait to watch it. I, I'm just realizing that they're in season three. Like I had no idea that the new season came out. Yeah. So I, it took me a while too because I don't have cable. But um, someone gave me their password to their <laughs> information, so that's how I'm watching it. But um, it's really, really cool. So throughout the seasons, they've mentioned like Alana going to therapy and a little bit about her depression and taking medication. But this specific 
episode um, really talks about actually seasonal depression on top of her depression, right? So it talks about her medication um, and then, like, the fact that she's really struggling with it. And I just, I really loved it. Like, it really um, kind of showed, it was just so real. Um, And as someone with depression, I could really relate to it because it just, it's something that you cannot control. It's an illness. It's not, like, a personality trait, right? Um, And I think that specifically her character, um, talking about it and representing it was super powerful. Yay. Yeah, so take a look at it. Um, Definitely watch it. I love the show. It really reminds me of, like, friendships that I've had. So to me, it's just hilarious that I think you'll really enjoy it. For me, um, over the holiday uh, weekend, I went and saw Coco with my mom and my dad. Mm, I want to see it so bad. Yeah, and I'm not going to give any spoilers at all, but um, if you if you don't know, Coco is uh, Disney Pixar's latest film. Uh, and It's based in a town in Central Mexico, and it also is centered around Dia de los Muertos. Um, and I don't want to get too much into the plot, but it was really beautiful to see Mexicans depicted in a way that was just about family and every day. It was about family and, like, just showing Mexicans, like, regular people, you know? I know that sounds so basic and so bare minimum, but... It just proves how important it is to be able to see yourself and um, your culture represented in mainstream media. Um, at least you know, at least here in the United States, I I will honor and recognize that we have uh, a lot of representation through you know Spanish language outlets, um, but I think. Given the xenophobic nature of our times, I think it's just even more important to have uh, media like this uh, in represented in the United States. Right, and all the toxic rhetoric, right, post-election, or that just has been here forever. Right. I mean, I, I want to put a little caveat, and that's with any media that I consume um, that I'm always critical of it. Um, you know, Disney has not been uh, that great at um, making culturally sensitive or appropriate movies before <coughs> Pocahontas. Um, oh my gosh! But although they, uh, though in Pocahontas, they do say that the white people are dangerous. Yeah, but they also <laughs> portray Pocahontas as. Like, as if she's in a consensual relationship with what's-his-face, right? So, like, come on. (laughs) But, um, you know, I think... And I'll continue to be critical of Disney and Pixar, but one thing that they've been working towards in the last few movies is um, working with uh, cultural consultants, right? So they did it with Moana, Oh, I love Moana. Yeah, they did it with Moana, and they they did it with this movie, and um, I'm also having internal conflicts with one of the consultants that they had, because I love him, and also I'm infuriated by some of 
his uh, latest ideas around um, trans people, Lalo Alcaraz. Um, is one of the cultural consultants, so I have a lot of conflicting feelings um, abound around this particular piece of media, but I will say um, that I actually want to go see it again, and I want to go see it um, in Spanish, um, and it just, it really was such a beautiful movie to watch with my mom and my dad, particularly, because... Mm. You know, um, my family, actually, we did we don't celebrate Dia de los Muertos in the tradition that is known to a lot of Mexican families. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side actually didn't, she didn't like the tradition. And I think some of that was based on her Catholicism. Um, my mom says it isn't, but I, I think that's partially what it is. Um, but... I really love the tradition because of what it teaches us, and that is to really learn about our ancestors, ask about our ancestors, and, like, stay connected to our ancestors. I think it's such a beautiful tradition. Um, and, and there were so many things about the way the family was represented that I did see in my own family, um... And, uh, even, like, with the, there's, like, a abuelita in the, there's a couple of abuelitas, actually, <laughs> in the movie. And just the interactions with, um, the family and their, you know, elders, it was just really beautiful. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, it was just really special to be able to share that with my mom and my dad. Um, and, like, we were all in tears. <laughs> Aww. We were all in tears, and we were all just, like, really um, happy after we left the movie. So it was just such a, like, special moment to ha to share it with them. Um, and so I, I definitely recommend other people uh, to go watch it and let me know what you think. Uh, I don't want to, like, give too much away in case you haven't seen it yet, um, but I would love to be able to spill the beans and share my real thoughts with folks that have seen it. <laughs> so, so, um, not me. Yeah. So, um, send me a little love note and let me know what you thought. Yeah. And if anyone is a Broad City fan, we're definitely friends. So let me know what you thought about Ilana, um, tackling depression. We are almost done and we are now in Santa Mañana. Tokaya, what are you going to do to after this long kind of weekend of traveling and visiting family and starting the new work week? What are you going to do to take care of yourself? Um, so I've actually spent most of today taking care of myself and just getting myself set up for the rest of the week. So because I indulged quite a bit this weekend, um, I took today to make sure to reset uh, my eating habits. I um, have been drinking a lot of water today, a lot of water with lemon. Uh, I got up and went to the gym this morning, and that felt so good to move my body and um, listen to music while I was working out. I actually really love working out, especially when I'm not rushed. I think... When I'm not rushed and, and I can have, like, a leisurely workout, I really appreciate, like, where my headspace is, being able to catch up on either, like, 
a playlist I haven't been able to listen to yet or a podcast. It's always like me time. So that was really great. Um, I will have something to eat before I, you know, call it a night and get some rest and get a full eight hours of rest because it's going to be a very busy week and I have more travel planned this week. So I have to be really good about making sure that I'm getting plenty of rest um, especially when you're traveling so much, you know, I want to make sure my immune system is, is on the up and up. So oh, sure. just be taking my vitamins and, and, um, taking care of myself in like the very most basic ways of getting rest and staying hydrated and eating good food. What about you? Oh, that sounds great. Um, so I have a pretty, I have a couple of deadlines this week, which have really been kind of on my mind. So I'm just trying to be mindful about that and trying to not stress about it or really obsess about them. Um, so just, um, and in doing that, I'm just like you trying to just take care of my body and relax. I listened to some music, put some records on this morning and was going through my emails, um, finishing up a book that I had. So for me, really, it's a continuation of what I have been doing um, and trying to be consistent, which is very hard for me. Um, but finally, finally, literally finally, after like four months of making my appointment, I have my therapist appointment on Tuesday. Oh, congratulations. Yes. It was so bizarre that it's it was so long. But anyways... I'm having that on Tuesday, so I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully the therapist is good. We shall see. I'll keep everyone posted, but I'm really looking forward to that. Um, And yeah, as always, um, taking the probiotics, staying hydrated, and hopefully being more consistent about working out, Mm. (laughs) which is hard for me. Progress, not perfection, right? Oh, I like that. It's true. (laughs) Well, we are at the end of another episode, episode four. Woohoo! Our official podcaster episode. Since <laughs> we have so many issues putting this out, but I'm happy that we did. I am so happy we stuck through it, and um, we can, you know, put this one to rest and <laughs> put ourselves to rest at this point. So thank you for your patience and for tuning in to another episode of Sana Sana Podcast. Sana mañana. Sana mañana, folks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sana Sana Podcast, written and co-hosted by Adriana and Adriana. Our theme song is by Alina Celeste. Our cover art features a photograph by Tanto Jensen. Join the conversation. Follow Sana Sana on Twitter at, at Sana Sana Podcast. Or send us love letters to sanasanapodcast at gmail.com. Sana Sana is a Despierta production and is recorded at Full Circle Collective in the Bridgeport Art Center in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about Full Circle, visit fullcirclecollective.space.